2,000 years. How, Walter? How? In heaven's name, Walter, this is what mankind has been dreaming of. Sam. Tell me the secret. I can't tell you the secret, Sam, because I don't know it myself. Come on, we're gonna go for a joyride. just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome back to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And we uh, hope you guys enjoyed last episode uh, and made up your mind about what was going on there. I know we had some debate about that. Uh, and now we have one that's pretty clear cut, and it's still a really, it's, this one's going to be a fun one to talk about. There's no ambiguity here, I don't think. So it seems like it's a pretty straightforward story. Yeah, a little, no, little, little wonky, yeah, how it happens. But yeah, um, this is season one. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no you're fine i'm just you're jumping fine. right into Continue. it yeah uh <laughs> you know because you only got so much time right you know you're not you can't you can't live forever uh all right season one episode 24 long live walter jameson air date uh march 3rd sorry march 18th 1960 uh number one film at the time was can can the reason why i want to mention this film is that uh frank sinatra started in this because he had to because he broke a contract <laughs> obligation with 20th Century Fox for walking off the set of Carousel. So I thought that was funny that he was forced to be in this movie. He was paid $200,000. Yeah, he was paid $200,000 <laughs> and a percentage of the film's profits. And so it's like, that's a big punishment to be paid money and get a share of the movie. Um, and yeah. he was drunk the whole time, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, no, I just it, it was interesting because it's just like I didn't I reading about him having to actually do it, and then also I dug a little further. Uh, Soviet premier uh, Nikita Khrushchev actually visited the set while this is being filmed, and he took the opportunity to to use his visit and the and things he described there uh, in the dances, and he said that he saw things that were depraved and pornographic, and described all of American culture that way just because of this one film set. So it seems <laughs> I I wasn't sure if you switched to the episode if you're still talking to Can Can. No, talking about, uh, Can, about Can. Can Can. Yeah. And I was like, I don't remember any uh, dancing in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like I just wanted to mention that because it's like, you know, the further we go along here, the the, you know, the more things stay the same about like, let's just take something completely out of context and label it something different. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so this day in history, or I should say, close enough to this day, uh, two things I just want to mention here. One, just because I think you'd find this funny, on the seventeenth, uh, sculptor <clears throat> Jean uh, Tinguli uh, introduced the first piece of auto destructive art at New York's Museum of Modern Art. Uh, it was composed of bicycle wheels and motors, and was activated at six thirty p.m. and destroyed itself within an hour. <clears throat> huh. That that seems very uh, seems very punk. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, also, the day before this was the uh, invasion at the Bay of Pigs. Oh, that's so. that's actually much more important than what I brought up about a piece of art <laughs> that, that destroys itself. Just a little bit. Yeah. Um, also, I want to mention on the actual day of the film or the day of the episode aired, uh, this just because it seems prevalent to the Super Bowl here. Uh, the football team that was the Dallas Rangers changed their name to the Cowboys. So America's team was born on the day this came out. No, uh, hold on. It, no, never mind. It what? was April 17th. How did I jump a year and a month when I was doing research? Never mind. It was not Invasion of the Bay of Pigs. It was 1961. That oh. makes more sense. Okay. <laughs> I say, was, was that under Kennedy? I, I can't remember. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was under Kennedy. So, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Ah, eh, whatever. No, I, I wrote it down on here for some reason. I don't know what website I was looking the date up. Must have had it. But I brought it back up and I was like, 1961. Hold on. <laughs> well, we're, we're teasing, we're, we're teasing uh, the next season that's coming. Yes, yeah. yeah. All right, disregard me. I'm off to a bad start here. <laughs> All right. Um, you know what? We're, we we researched Twilight Zone, not history. So, you know, yeah, that's you get, true. You get, you, get what, you get what you pay for here, right? Uh, all right. Anyway, that's it. That's all I had. It was art destroying itself, and then the Cowboys became the Cowboys. Oh, number one song, uh, theme from Summer Place, Percy Faith and his orchestra again. And uh, yeah, just disregard my fake history. Um, <laughs> Your fake news. <laughs> it's alternative history. Alternative history. I like it. All right. So this episode is directed by Anton Leader, uh, also credited in this episode as Tony Leader. Um, this is, he did one other Twilight Zone episode, Midnight Sun, which I think is in the next season. Um, and most notably for me, he directed the film Children of the Damned. But yeah. he was mostly a TV director. Yeah, I just uh, want to point out he directed an episode of Star Trek called For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. That is a wordy title. I know you don't care about Star, Star Trek. Star Trek for the episode. <laughs> it's all coming back to Star Trek. I just like I just like that we find one in every episode almost. <laughs> Some connection. Yes. Um, this episode is written by Charles Beaumont once again. He's returning to the show. Um, I have some interesting life facts uh, connecting to this episode uh, later on when we talk about the plot. Um, and it was stock music, but I also really enjoyed the stock music in us. Yeah, it, w- it was good. Uh, I enjoyed that. Let's see here. Um, yeah, so that's that's it for the actual production side here. Uh, I'm sure you want to talk about the, the lead, uh, Kevin McCarthy. Yes, yeah, we have uh, Kevin McCarthy plays Professor Walter Jameson and uh, some other characters. Um, he was most notably, and, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the biggest thing he ever did for me was, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956 and little, little cameo in the 1978 version as well. And Um, I I would say that his most important role to me was his RJ Fletcher in the Weird Yankovic movie UHF in 1989. I do love UHF. (laughs) (laughs) I just, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, both of those films are really important to me, so... Um, I had to mention that. Um, interesting enough, he was in a movie with Marilyn Monroe called Misfits with uh, Estelle Winwood, the actress who plays uh, Lorette Bowen in this film or this episode. Oh. Excuse me, I'm dying over here. So they both <laughs> starred in that together. Um, but Kevin McCarthy made a pretty big name for himself just doing monster movies through the years. Um, stuff like Piranha. I think he had a bit part in uh, Matinee. Um, he was in the Howling and ended up back in the Twilight Zone movie. Yeah, that's right. He was the dad in the the third segment. 
Yeah, or the that. uncle or something. What yeah, he? He, uh, either way, that's the one. And I hope that we cover the movie at some point on the show because I could just got to tell you that, like, and I, I, you know, we'll talk about it more then. But that segment just destroyed me as a kid. Like, I could not handle that segment, and it yeah. was weird. Well, it's going to be fun to watch that. Uh, maybe after like the first two seasons of this or something, and uh, just because it's going to be a who's who of actors i'm sure popping up that i would have never caught before we start going through the series <laughs> <Right>. like <laughs> no. you know I, I swear like every major episode we come across there's somebody that pops back up in the movie so it, it should be really fun uh, that's funny that you say that because uh next the next episode you're going to get, get a kick out of who the lead is and how it connects to the the twilight zone universe um the spoiler alert there every and then and then the episode after that the professor from killigan's islands in it so there you go every, yes. everything's connected um, all right yeah <laughs> all right and then we have uh edgar oh man where is it edgar Stelly, who plays uh professor sam kittridge this is only twilight zone episode and i wasn't too familiar with much else in his career um do you have anything for him? No, he just a lot of TV work. He looked like he looked like one of those recognizable character actors, but I could not place him in anything else that I remembered. Yeah, I went through his filmography like three times because I'm like, what is he from? But uh, apparently nothing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just return to the dust where from whence he came. Your career is meaningless to me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, he's he's great in this episode. Can't wait to talk about him. Um, we have Estelle Winwood, as the aforementioned uh, Estelle Winwood plays Lorette Bowen. She was in uh, one episode of Bewitched. Had to bring that up. Nice. Um, most famously, she was in The Producers, and like I said before, The Misfits with uh, Kevin McCarthy. And uh, this was also her only Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, interesting. I was reading about her. She had a hell of a life. Uh, so she was a big stage actress um, growing, you know, going into the business. And mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of actors at the time, she expressed a distaste for films and then resisted offers she received during the 1920s. So like when movies are starting to blow up, she just felt that that film was like below her. And then she ends up making a lot of her career after in television, which is an interesting mm-hmm. transition. Yeah, uh, yeah. I saw she lived to like a hundred and one or something. Yeah, so that kind of ties into the episode. <laughs> it does a little bit, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, lastly, we have Dottie Heath who plays Susanna Kittridge, and uh, this is her only Twilight Zone episode, and didn't really do too much else. No, there's a some there's a film in '66 called Seconds that she ended up with um, Edgar Stelly, the the her father in this episode, mm-hmm. and I was reading really trying to figure out what that movie was. I couldn't figure out much about it other than they appeared together. And uh, yeah, so not, yeah, much, that, not much. That's one that's been on my watch list for a while. I okay. still haven't gotten around to check it out. Somebody else uh, fairly big is in that. Well, because I think it deals with someone like basically like recreating an identity, like physically changing into somebody else. And that seemed like seems like there's like a, like a, a, a kind of 60 sci fi vibe through it. And that's about all I could figure out about that movie. Yep. Ah, you yeah. know who it is. Uh, John Frankenheimer directed that, uh, who did Ronin with Robert De Niro, the original Manchurian Candidate, uh, Island of Dr. Moreau from 96. Okay. <laughs> so he's he's a uh, fairly big director. I think I was just going through his filmography and added that one to my watch list. I knew that sounded familiar. Oh, well, there you go. So there actually is some substance there. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, all right, so that, that's it. There's not, not much here in this cast, and um, we'll just get right to, uh, to Serling here. You're looking at Act 1, Scene 1 of a Nightmare. We found 
One not restricted to witching hours and dark rain-swept nights. Professor Walter Jameson, popular beyond words, who talks of the past as if it were the present, who conjures up the dead as if they were alive. In the view of this man, Professor Samuel Kitteridge, Walter Jameson has access to knowledge that couldn't come out of a volume of history, but rather from a book on black magic, which is to say that this nightmare begins at noon. It's the, the piano. I don't know why. <laughs> this nightmare begins at noon as opposed to one or two o'clock. I, I don't understand. Anyway, um, g- good intro. I liked I liked the weird college music as the show started because you see the college campus. It was just kind of yeah, a nice little touch. Undisclosed college campus. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I like the push through uh, through the windows into the classroom as he's giving his uh, his his um, you know lesson to the class. Uh, so there's some nice nice directing in this episode uh, to start. Yeah. All right. So I guess we'll jump into here. Um, I feel like you should take the lead on this one because my mind is going a million different places right now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to screw up the synopsis if I start. <laughs> You're going to be like, it starts scene, Bay of Pigs. All right. Now, uh, so what's going to happen is uh, he's, giving, he's giving a discussion to the class about um, – uh, General Sherman's march to the sea uh, of the Civil War, and he's and he's talking. He's basically painting a picture of of how people viewed Sherman, and he's reading from a journal uh, that's handwritten, uh, describing some of the experiences of dealing with with Sherman. And uh, Kitteridge is in the classroom, sitting in, watching the lesson. And as soon as the lesson's over, he kind of asks him like, "Hey, that's that's uh, an interesting book you got there. Can I see it?" And uh, you know, he's like. Sure, you could take a look at it, but I'm going to hang on to it because he he says something about like I don't trust absent-minded professors, which I thought that's an interesting turn of phrase. Yeah, and he, and he says something like, uh, "You remember what happened last time or something." So. Yeah. <laughs> so it's there, just, there's a lot of funny lines in this. Uh. <laughs> there's there's some yeah you're right there are some funny lines there's there's one that he he pulls off later that um the main character pulls off later that's that's really funny that I almost recorded for the intro but it felt a little too on the nose. Uh, <laughs> So you you find out that that uh, he um, Jameson is actually engaged to Kitteridge's daughter, and they, and he comes over for dinner, uh, and as they're having a discussion after dinner over a game of chess, uh, Kitteridge confronts him more about the knowledge that he has about the Civil War. And, yes. Yeah. And, um. Yeah. I I want to jump back for a second. I wanted to talk about uh, um, Sam sitting in on the lecture. I went back and rewatched the beginning of this and uh, his face as he's listening to the lecture after you've gone through and you've seen the conclusion of this episode and knowing what his suspicions about uh, Walter Jameson are, his acting in that is amazing. Like, yeah. I, his facial expressions and everything. It's it's like inquisitive and terrified and confused. <laughs> no, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's uh... it's, it's amazing. I had to go back after everything and uh, just watch that beginning again to see his face. And I was like, Oh man, like that, that was fantastic. Yeah, that you're right. That was, that was good. Um, I, he, he's actually, I mean, the, I, well, actually I'd say that he's one of the, the stronger parts of the episode. However, I also think that uh, McCarthy is like also strong as well. So, I mean, other than I, and I feel bad because the, the daughter isn't given much to do, you know, it's really just the two of them that run this whole thing and they're doing really well. Um, they, they act off each other really well. 
and yeah and i mean the episode lives and dies on uh them being able to uh kind of keep the mystery going between the two of them uh but i do like uh the daughter in this there's the scene where she she's running upstairs to go do something i forget what it was and uh her dad says something turns around and she sticks her tongue out and walks away. Yeah. Made me chuckle. Well, like I, I, she did what she could with the part. <laughs> you get the idea that he's very protective of his daughter, but in the sense that he wants her cause she's close to getting a PhD. So he wants her to go off and actually use her mind and apply her education whenever uh, Walter wants to marry her. And he says something about like, well, you'll be a housewife soon. It's like, you know, wasted potential right there, you know? And he makes some kind yeah. of offhand comment about how, you know, who knows, maybe you'll end up having to support me. Like basically like it's kind of a, it's just a, it's very of the time, you know. But uh, yeah. Well, uh, also, I th- I think uh, I think her dad said something like she'll get her PhD if I have to spank her. Yeah, it was weird. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's like I don't even really get what you're trying to say there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as they're having this conversation over a game of chess, which uh, with with the net that they pulled off the top of the chessboard, I don't know what was doing that other than to, like to keep the pieces in place. I don't understand what that was. Some kind of weird dust off. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah. know. Uh, 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 Kitteridge pulls out a book um, that has photos from the Civil War. And he's like, yeah, well, I was trying to figure out this this general you were talking about. Not general. Whatever the the rank was that he was reading from this, this journal. And he finds a photo that looks exactly like Walter uh, in, the, in the Civil War uh, down to a ring that he has on his hand and calls him out on it. And I was like, I need yeah. you, you know, explain to me what happened. He's like, did you have an ancestor in the civil war? And he was just like, no, <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I like how he's just being very honest, but also not telling him anything. He's like, no, I didn't have an ancestor there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- this reminded me of, uh, <laughs> kind of tangential every once in a while you see those things going around where you f- they find like an old war photo and there's somebody that looks like Nicholas Cage in it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one was great. It, looked, it definitely looked like him in the Civil War, which if there's anybody that's going to be immortal, it'd be, it'd be Nicolas Cage. I don't know why. Because you know, <laughs> of his debt. <laughs> he, he has to stick around and pay that off. You know. It's like, man, it's going to take me 200 years to pay this off. And the <laughs> alchemist is like, oh, sure. <laughs> right. Um, so, so yeah, Kittredge, uh, pretty much just by process of questioning Walter, uh, he figures out that Walter's a lot older than he appears. Yeah, um, and uh, he basically just gets Kevin McCarthy's character, uh, Walter, he just gets him to admit it yeah. pretty quickly. Which I give credit to this this episode that they didn't make that the mystery, that it was just a very matter of fact, like, yeah, I, uh, you know, I paid an alchemist a lot of money to, you know, because I was afraid of death and then I woke up and I've never died, you know, and yeah. it's like, that's like, that's about like, and you don't need anything further than that because he doesn't even know how he's around and that that explains it away. Yeah, it's similar to how we felt about the uh, last flight a few episodes ago, where it's not the convincing that really uh, takes place in the episode. It's just we're going like, here it is. Take it or not. Take it or leave it. Uh, This is what's happening. And uh, for this show, that's exactly what you need to do. Yeah, no, because this one is one of those ones that just takes takes that off the table immediately. So you can worry about the conflict that Kitteridge now knows that that Jameson's been around for quite a while and may and may be immortal. And he's trying to marry off, you know, marry his daughter. And he just, he already knows that that that's not going to end well because she's yeah, her he asks, age. He asks yeah. him, like, how many uh, women have you married 
how many of you left, all that kind of thing. And uh, he tells him, uh, I, I can't let you marry my daughter. And that's when his daughter comes down the steps again. <laughs> yeah, and then, that's what the best line is. It's like, what, what do you mean you can't marry me? And he's like, your father thinks I'm too old for you. And that was the best line in the episode. <laughs> it was like he was telling her the truth. And it was so on the nose, but it, she couldn't see it. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to stop here and say, if you were going to live forever, I would think being a history professor is probably one of the better things to do. Yeah, I was, I was, I, I was going to uh, commend this character just because you can take this in so many ways. Like, look at like Highlander. How <laughs> I was going to ask you about that because I know you had recently seen that for the first time. Yeah, but you know. You can take that and uh, collect money, and basically you can turn into an evil uh, super villain. You know, during your time, you can you can use all of that for evil. I like that he has pretty much taken all of the wisdom, or the lack of wisdom. He's uh, <laughs> as he uh, states in this, and he's taken it and he's become a professor with it. I thought that was such a noble character trait for this. Yeah, because, I mean, like, if there's anybody that could speak to what actually happened, it would be him. So, I mean, it. but you're right. Like, he, he pretty much tells um, uh, Kitteridge that he, like, well, you know, Kitteridge basically says to him, he's like, you, for someone that's been around as long as you have, like, you don't know anything, you know? Like, and basically, uh, Jameson's admitted to being a coward and being afraid of death still, you know, at this point. Yeah. And there was a, a good line in there talking about how he has a gun in his desk and that every night he prays for the courage to pull the trigger. And it's like, that was dark, you know, like, and it's, it's interesting that you would think someone that's been around for over 2000 years, uh, who knew Plato, I think, I don't know if he's name dropping him be like, I know celebrities like Plato. Um, I well, think yeah, he points at the statue in the room. He's like, let's just say I'm old enough to have met this person. Yeah. And uh, points at a statue of Plato. You would think uh, that there would be something that you would glean over the years other than you know, people not, die. Not a and statue made of Play-Doh, but uh, a statue. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, the, that was had that to would, do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's some amazing dialogue though within that uh, back and forth between him and Sam. Um, I, I I wrote down a few of the quotes. I it, probably one of my favorite things dealing. I, it, this whole episode is a meditation on life and death. But uh, there's a line he says: "It's death that gives this world a point." Yeah, it's like, man, Charles Beaumont. Here we go. <laughs> and then, I mean, that comes back to even um, one of our first episodes, one for the angels with uh, mm -hmm. the salesman, right? Like, basically, yeah. he couldn't leave until he gave one last great pitch because basically he wanted to, to show that he did something. Yeah, you know. And it's, it's I will definitely take this episode over that one though because the darker tone in this uh, really sells it for me. That's true, but that episode had Mister Death and a, a sound to go with <laughs> Mister Death. That's true. Like, what if Walter James had met Mr. Death? That That's the episode that I won't know anyway. <laughs> but you're right. This one's a lot. This one's more. I, I like this. This one appeals more to my sensibilities today. Like, I don't have to put on my 1960s glasses to to try to appreciate where it's coming from. And it, I think it, I think I appreciate it more now where it's very realistic in the sense of just like, yeah, I've been around, I've been near death and, and basically like I've learned nothing, you know, other than I've existed and I could speak to that, but there, he yeah. doesn't have that. Like any, any it's, a, it's almost a trope now where if you have someone that's immortal or near immortal, like they have some type of wisdom. Right. And he really yeah. doesn't. Well, and uh, this whole this whole uh, story has been done so many times with vampire movies now, 
just the whole kind of tortured soul living forever yeah. and seeing everyone around him die. You know, it, it definitely has become a trope over the years. But I, I like the way he did this one. It was simple. And another thing I can commend uh, the writing on this, he doesn't spend a lot of time creating rules. So yeah. when we get to the the climax of this episode and uh, the uh, the uh, where Kevin McCarthy's character ends up, you don't question it because yeah. he didn't set up rules that you have to follow. So you just go along with it. And I think that's so smart. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, because it's just like, how does it happen? Well, I talk to a guy, and I don't know if this is ever going to have an endpoint. So, like, he didn't know the rules, you know. So that's that. You're right. That's I didn't think about that, but it does kind of it does kind of make it nice and neat and put a bow on it to where it. This is just more about uh, like an examination of a father talking to a, a would be suitor and realizing, you know, maybe this isn't the best idea. Because I mean, ultimately, him him being near immortal. I mean, that's that's the Twilight Zone part of the episode. But the the human part of it is just a dad trying to determine if if his daughter's going to be better off, you know, marrying this guy. Yeah. And that that could have been applied to any type of story. Yeah, I, I and I mean the obviously the fear of growing old because even uh, uh, Sam in this there's when they're playing that chess game and he touches hands with him and he's like. You know, looking at his hand, and he's like, 12 years ago, these wrinkles weren't here. The hair wasn't gray, you know. And uh, his little almost breakdown when he's talking to him, just like, tell me the secrets, which he played at the beginning of the episode. Um, I, I just love it's a great meditation on uh, dealing with aging, dealing with death. You know, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, and absolutely. it's it's so simplistic. And again, another episode we're praising for being just simplistic, solid storytelling. Well, because then then it can drop the hammer on like like um, what's actually like. I feel like a simple arrival gives you more time to ponder everything as opposed to questioning everything. You know, like because yes, you yeah. know me, I'm capable of tearing something apart. Not not out negatively, but like I think of like a million different ways it can go. And this is pretty pretty much it like I, I like that i didn't i don't have to worry about because i mean what ultimately what undoes him is is the very thing that was being pretty much like the the father accusing him of you know yeah. um so well that's a good segue yeah. so after he leaves the house uh he goes back home and you know what we forgot to mention when he's uh, apparently lives across the street from the kittredges <laughs> um i took that uh, as when he was going town. over there for dinner yeah. What was that? I just took that as them being in a college town, and you know, there's times where colleges will have houses set aside for staff and faculty. So I didn't really think too much about yeah. that they'd be living across the street from each other. Yeah. So, but when he ran across the street, you see this old lady hiding behind a tree watching him, which is a fairly big plot point there. Yeah. Um. So after he leaves the Kittredge's house, he goes back across the street to his house, and he sits down at his desk and. Uh, takes out a pad of paper and a gun and it, it looks like he's going to start writing a suicide note or something. And, uh, this old lady that was watching him earlier in the episode comes in and, uh, questions him if he remembers her or not. And, uh, I, I really enjoyed this with the lighting and everything because he just had his desk lamp on. And after you hear the voice, he just, flips up the desk lamp at her it's this really stark black and white yeah. shot of a uh, very very old lady which uh 
kind of scary just with the lighting and everything. <laughs> no. I I was I thought this the way this was going to go. I thought she was going to be the alchemist that he said disappeared. Oh. <laughs> I, that's I, I I, that never like, occurred to me but i could see how that would be where it's like basically like there's some part of the story he didn't finish where there's a debt to be paid or something you know yeah that's what i thought we we're gonna get like some major twist from that but then what happens actually makes more sense <laughs> <laughs> so um she shows up because and you find out that this was a, a former wife of his and he first tried to play stupid which that didn't last long uh, she found out about the uh, engagement between him and the, the professor's daughter because of the photo in the paper. So my argument now is if you saw technology coming and you've lived forever, I'm pretty sure you'd learn to keep your face out of things. Cause I feel like if it wasn't for the civil war photo, he wouldn't have been found out. And if it wasn't for the engagement photo, he wouldn't have been found out. So I don't know why this guy was so blind to like documenting yourself. You know, like, because you figure that that yeah. would raise more questions in the future. And he's been around long enough. Okay, I guess that's the one question I have is like, if you know you're leaving a documented trail behind you, why wouldn't you think that that, that wouldn't come back to you at some point? Yeah. <laughs> I, I I didn't really question it. It was just a plot device. <laughs> and then, a plot device. For, it's fine. <laughs> I, I guess so. But it's just like, man, it's like, this guy, just he just likes getting these photo taken. And he's like, eh, that would never come back to bother me. Never, ever, you know. Um, He's got to be found out because this would be a uh, really boring episode if uh, <laughs> everyone accuses him. He's like, no. Okay. Okay. And they just leave. <laughs> yeah. And he gets married. And that's the end of the episode. The end of the episode is him burying that wife and looking off in the next one. You know, like that. Yeah. that You're right. That'd yeah. be much sad. That, w- that would be a Serling screenplay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the older lady, the, uh, something happens where she ends up getting a hold of the gun and, and shoots uh, Walter. And leaves. She just leaves, which is funny because as uh, as Kitteridge is running across the street, he, just, he sees her and she just looks at him and she just takes off. Doesn't say a word to him. And uh, he goes up to the to the room where um, you know Walter is, and that's where the the like the the very Twilight Zone part of this episode happens. Yeah. Uh, so it it turns out she shot him in the stomach. So he's still alive. He's just uh, slowly dying, uh, really slowly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, though I guess fast in the uh, in another way. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, considering that he'd been around so long and he was dying in the matter of what five minutes. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a blink of an eye yeah. compared to what he's dealt yeah. with. <laughs> um, yeah, so he's dying, and uh, this is where we get the great effect of uh, him aging from shot to shot. And I was so scared that they were going to do the, uh, just set the camera up in the same place mm-hmm. and just fade it from one thing to another. Yeah. Like, but, uh, yeah. Like the Wolfman, like they, they did. Yeah, yeah. I was worried they were going to do that. Cause I'm not a huge fan of that type of effect, but they would just cut back and forth and they would show, uh, Sam's face. And every time they'd cut back, he'd get older and they'd cut back to Sam's face and he'd look more disturbed every time. <laughs> well, actually, I don't, I don't know if you read about this, uh, that's actually more they, they did something that doesn't happen anymore which is like i was teasing last episode because they shot on black and white film they were able to do something that you can't do now which is they used uh where was it they drew old age lines on his face and red makeup and yeah. they, they shot him with a red light to begin with and then as he was acting like he was aging they shifted from red to green so those lines would suddenly start appearing on his face yeah. and it was well, a really really cool shot yeah, well, I was uh, while I was watching it, I was like, man, he really looks like Doctor Jekyll, 
And I was reading a little bit more about the makeup technique. And I saw the whole thing about the red lines and the red light and everything and, uh, or the film. And, uh, it was the same makeup trick that they used in nice. the technique in, uh, the 1932 Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde. Yeah. Cause I was trying to explain it to, uh, to my wife, uh, and she didn't understand what I was talking about, so I had to pull up some um, <clears throat> some videos to show early television production because uh, with the way that the broadcast signal was like, because the the, the the it wasn't that the imagery wasn't that strong, so you had to have really dark colors or really bright colors. So some of the makeup they would use was like really outrageous, but you yeah. wouldn't know. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting that for a, a, an episode about someone that's been around forever they use um, an actually a pretty old technique to make him look like he's Asian. And I, I just, I thought that was uh thought that was awesome. Yeah. And the, the makeup is incredible for the time. Uh, the makeup artist was William Tuttle, who was on for twilight zone. He did tons of episodes, but he's probably most well known for the makeup he did in the eye of the beholder episode. Okay. That's yeah, the, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll get there eventually. It's the pig faces. Right. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, that's one of the most uh, famous, just thanks to SNL. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he's he's worked on so many movies. He's one of the most well-known makeup artists of pretty much all time. And uh, yeah, this I think this is his first his first shot at Twilight Zone. Wow. I mean, so I mean, if you guys have seen the episode, go back and watch that bit again. It's it's real quick, and it's just right um, right before he turns into. <laughs> the mummy um there's just a real quick push in of him sitting in a chair looking exhausted and it's just it's subtle but you can see the change and it's like it's i i that's the stuff that i lose my mind over whenever i see him like oh that all that was was lights and makeup and then, and yeah. then you look at movies say you're like guys they just use lights and makeup 60 years ago i don't know what you're doing you know so um <laughs> but it was really cool but yeah he falls on the floor in the last makeup that they show him with and uh, this is when the music kind of kicks up and everything. Mm-hmm. I actually had goosebumps. Like it was, it was. I I don't know why it was creeping me out. There's, <laughs> it's. This is the first time I think in the Twilight Zone that I've been like legitimately shaken with a, with something going on. <laughs> nice. It was weird. Um, but yeah, especially when uh, what's her name? Uh, Susanna comes running across the street and uh, Sam tries to keep her out of the room and. He's like, oh, he vanished, and his clothes are laying on the floor, and there's just piles of dust by his, uh, by his neck and his, uh, um, where his hands would have been. Is there's just something really creepy about it with the music and everything? Yeah, I just it, it was it was so messed up. <laughs> yeah, no, it was good. I liked, and the, and they made it a point to show you the ring still there and all that, and it was just like he yeah. was, and it's like it was almost like. And it's almost like it almost speaks to his impact on history, too, right? Like he was there and he didn't learn anything, didn't really get a sense of anything, was just scared to death, and he left no lasting impact. You know, he was just there, just blowing away, and that's it. Yeah. You know, and uh, it, he turned out the same as everyone else. Yeah. No, it was, <laughs> it know? was really cool. Um, so I was going to ask you who your favorite immortal is or near immortal, and I know you mentioned uh, Connor McCloud and Highlander. Uh, well, I, I was talking more about uh, uh, what's his name, oh, and oh. uh, Clancy uh, oh, Clancy the, the, Brown's the character. Kurgan. Yeah, the, the Kurgan. <laughs> yeah, the Kurgan. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Kurgan. <laughs> um, yeah, that guy's that guy's a bastard. Yeah, you're right. Just running around like I don't even know how to drive a car, but I'm just going to just you know terrify people. Uh, so, do you have a favorite immortal or near immortal? 
Um, well, as of recently, uh, I've, I've been fairly obsessed with the Highlander series, so uh, I'll go with that for lack of uh, preparation. I'm thinking about that. <laughs> nice. I know Connor Cloud is interesting because it's like he um there's the bit in that movie whenever he i think he saves a little girl that ends up being an assistant later and she asked him how he's able to survive and he's like it, it's a kind of magic and that was yeah. just kind of like this is one of those moments it's just a very awesome little bit in a movie you know where like a kid will just believe that um but my favorite immortal i put down or near immortal would be jason Voorhees, just because he doesn't know how he's around either he just kind of just shows up you know that's a good that's a that's a that's a good one <laughs> yeah um, so did you have any, anything else, uh, about the episode in full? Um, uh, little bits. Yeah. I guess the, uh, when I was doing some research, I guess the chess scene was cut out for the TV syndication version of this weird. Yeah. Which it, it, the whole part with him touching hands and everything, it, it seems so weird that they would have cut all that out. Um, some of the, some of the, uh, set was used for the time machine from 1960 mm-hmm. trying uh, to see if i have anything else um, the, the, oh, that, yeah. the, the most important thing i found so in the early 60s charles beaumont uh started showing a, the signs of like early onset alzheimer's disease mm-hmm. and he was uh, this episode was one of the first things he wrote while he started showing these signs and it's interesting that the stories uh, ends with this man basically decaying at a rapid rate yeah because he he was not around long after he started showing signs of trouble yeah i I think he worked for the next like 10 years and even like two years later after this episode he had somebody else he would just feed him ideas and he would actually write it Mm -hmm. so charles beaumont stopped even though he's credited to have written a bunch of movies after this he didn't actually write them he would just feed ideas to another person and they would write it for him and he slowly was it could not uh keep the output that he had before it it's it's just sad but it's interesting just looking at the story and how it lines up with what's going to happen with him over the next decade it's (laughs) it's kind of depressing actually a guy writing about how someone had all the time in the world and then then him himself not knowing that he didn't have much left yeah and just and just decaying at that fast rate you know it's 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 really sad that is sad Um, so especially because i've I've become (laughs) such a like i said i've been reading some of his short stories and stuff since we've started this and i i didn't really know too much about his personal life and just reading about that and then watching this episode, it just it, it I, I maybe that's why I was so disturbed at the end of this episode. Yeah, I, I could see that. I mean, that's and I know that's something I'm sure that we're going to read more into it, knowing what happened to him, you know, just yeah. because like, you know, I mean, obviously, this is a guy who had a lot of interesting ideas, regardless of, bef- you know, like what he did. Uh, Charles Beaumont did um, Perchance to Dream, right? The one with. Uh, yeah. OK. Yeah. So, I mean, the guy, clearly his imagination was uh, pretty active. So it's, it's going to be, I, I don't continue to be, it's just his, his being able to focus to actually sit down and write stuff from front to back was what was mm-hmm. uh, the issue. So he would feed ideas, like I said, to that other person, I forget the guy's name, but um, yeah, I mean, he continued to write incredible stuff even after this. So. Because we're definitely not done with the Charles Beaumont <laughs> no. episodes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're not. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I let's see here. I don't know if I had anything else in here other than, um, I, like I said, I mentioned that being a history professor would probably be a pretty good thing to do. Uh, and um, 
what else was in here? I, I like that the very when he was writing the note when he pulled the gun out, there was that bit where he actually looked at it again for like a second and considered it. It's like even mm-hmm. then, as he's about to be out the door and take away this girl, when the father knows what's going on, he has that moment of like, should I just be done with this now? And even though he was being still a coward whenever his former wife showed up, that's that that to me showed that there was a shred of like decency in him of being like, I could just be done with this and I'm not going to, you know, bother anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of that character is just unbelievably well-written for a 20 minute episode. Yeah. And, and Kevin McCarthy gives, he gives oh, it yeah, a, a, a gravity, right? And phenomenal actor. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I just thought I try to find things. Uh, I couldn't find anything about any immortals cause there's not, not one that I know of. Um, except yeah. for the only thing I had was the Nicholas cage. Yeah. Civil War <laughs> I was going to say Nicholas cage is an immortal. Uh, so I found, I found an interesting thing about the oldest person that is documented to live with the Guinness world book of records, uh, 122 years old. Her name was, uh, Jeanne Louise, uh, Calme. I think I'm pronouncing that right. She was from France. Born February 21st, 1875, and lived August 4th, 1997. So wow. just a point of reference here, there's a lot in here about the things that she did growing up, and it's, it's, it's amazing. But uh, what was it? She was born 14 years before the Eiffel Tower was constructed, um, and, and 15 years before the advent of movies. Um, the year of her birth, Tolstoy published Anna Karina, or Karinia, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, and Alexander Graham Bell patented the telephone. So she was like, she was born like when we think of, when we think of the past, we think of that. And this lady lives until, you know, 97, you know, which yeah. I could think back to r- with relative clarity. Right. Um, and it's just amazing. Like her life about how, like the things that she did, uh, what was it? She took up fencing at age 85. Like you just, you see the stuff. It's like that's, this lady, it's crazy. She, she lived more in her life. Uh, than I probably ever will, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just the idea of somebody being alive till 97 that was born before film and just being a film fan. That's it. That would be so strange to just see, like, I was trying to think of the last blockbuster and I was thinking of Godzilla, but that was 98. So, well, at least you didn't have to sit through that. (laughs) Um, but just, could you imagine going from uh, film not existing to Jurassic Park? Like, yeah, to Jurassic Park or something. Yeah. Like that's that's just mind well, blowing. Like the, the advent of movies, and then like the telephone becoming a thing, and then the rolling just out everything. of like of like modern electricity, and then the shift from like you know like I'm sure she lived in, in like Paris, so I'm sure she knew like you know um, paved roads, but you know like just the you just think about how like we like we I know you love the old west, and this is around that time, you know, and you think about how the world was unsettled in a lot of ways. You know, and it's yeah. hard to think, you know, it's it's really crazy to know that she lived into what we know as the modernization of the 20th century, you know, yeah. and it's just, um, it was interesting. So I just want to mention one more thing about her because she was actually, seemed like she had a pretty good sense of humor. Um, they asked her, uh, what was it, at her, at her 120th birthday, journalist asked her what kind of future she expected, and she just said a very short one. <laughs> <laughs> This lady, oh. this lady seems amazing. And then what was it? Yeah. She, she it smoked seems like until, she, uh, yeah. she got wiser with age. <laughs> uh, what was it? She smoked cigarettes. Where was it? Uh, she smoked until she was um, one seventeen. So she smoked from twenty one <laughs> to one seventeen, and it's just like, all right, I'm glad that you kicked that habit finally because it was going to kill you. You know, 
Um, but no, that's, like, that's the uh, that's the fact that you do not tell a smoker. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I could quit any time. Look, that French lady lived over a hundred years. Yeah, um, I smoke smoke all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, this lady seems like she was uh, pretty much amazing. Like in terms of like she was still cycling, like using a bicycle till age 100. Like I I can't remember wow. the last time I was on a bike, you know. But whatever. Anyway, um, I yeah. you know you know it's awesome. I hope I live a nice long life, but I I really don't want to live to 122. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems like she was like. In her case, which I mean, you, you see people that get that age, it's like they're just they're gone. Yeah. Seemed like she was like relatively, you know, together even up until 120. You know, like wow. that's yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, yeah, I guess if I guess if I'm still there and uh, being able to do fencing at 100, I guess I'll <laughs> live till 120. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess if I have to. <laughs> oh, but I just I thought that was interesting because I know we'd already talked before about uh preserving bodies and uh. And Lennon's missing foot, a uh, foot skin, but uh, but I figured I'd just try to go the other direction. But yeah, I thought that was kind of an like you you have this guy who was around for two thousand years, seemed like he didn't do much other than be in the Civil War, and you have this lady who was around one hundred twenty. Sounds like she did a lot more in her life than Walter Jameson did in two thousand years. Yeah, but Walter Jameson, <laughs> lazy bastard, lazy bastard, <laughs> good for nothing. All right, so so yeah, I think that's going to put a pen on uh on uh, Walter Jameson uh, and what's yeah. left of him anyway. Yeah, um, great episode though. I'm, uh, I, I guess we'll wrap it up during a twist meter here. Oh yeah, that's right. I got to talk about the twist. Um, I set a two because uh, the twist that his past would come back to to cause him problems didn't seem that surprising to me. Yeah, um, I'll give it a three, <laughs> just because. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I, I like. I didn't know where this, I had never seen this episode going in before. And, uh, just the revelation that he's immortal was interesting enough. And then, uh, having his past come back and haunt him. Yes, it was predictable. Uh, but I enjoyed it. I liked it. So I'm going to give it a three. It wasn't the best twist in the world. I don't think it was necessarily even a twist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's always awkward when we get to great episodes that don't have what we'd call a classic Twilight Zone twist. Because um, I never know what to rate it. Because I feel like if I rate it low, people are going to think I hate the episode. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I think we've rated stuff like two or ones, but love the episode. Uh, but I'm going to give it a three out of five on the twist meter. Yeah, and, and like the ending of this felt very much like the four of us are dying, which is the one where the guy could change his face. And even yeah. though he took the, the, the face of the boxer... Um, it still was his past coming back to kind of catch up to him. Yeah. I, I definitely enjoyed this more than that one though. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, I just felt like, I just felt like everybody just did a phenomenal job in this. Um, the, the only thing, the director, it was pretty straightforward. There's no real flourishes. Like I said, I like the dark room with the desk lamp on it, but I mean, there's nothing really mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Charles Beaumont, man, I, I just, he's somebody, I was familiar with his work without knowing who he was going into this podcast. And I'm, I'm thankful again for, uh, discovering him. Awesome. I, I feel like I, I've been missing out by not reading any of his stuff. I just, I'm, I'm reading about old ladies and, and, lat- <laughs> and, and linen's foot skin. I'm not doing anything pertinent to reading and developing. Uh, <laughs> I well, have, this, I have a bunch this of good parties based knowledge. on a short story or anything. Yeah. So, I mean. I just I downloaded the uh, when we were doing Perchance a Dream. I downloaded the uh, collection of his short stories. So 
Well, just been going through some of those. Look at that. You're, you're a learned scholar, and one day you'll be a professor. I guess. <laughs> um, all right. So need to, the, need to do more history. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, learnings. you know, just, just as we've proven, we don't know our history that well. So uh, anyway. Um, at least so, I caught myself because <laughs> I started saying it, and I was like, that feels wrong. Hold how, on. <laughs> how, how great would that have been if we would have just been like, oh, I didn't know the Bay of Pigs happened then. And someone's like, you guys realized you did an episode about a history professor, and you screwed up the <laughs> Like what happened, right? <laughs> that would have been like very, very appropriate. Um, so um, yeah. Anyway, that's that's going to do for the episode. Uh, Kevin, how can people get a hold of us? Can find us on Facebook, Strange Highways. Uh, join in the conversation on there. Paul does a great job uh, keeping things entertaining up there. Um, you can email us at strangehighwayspodcasts at gmail dot com if you want to write us emails, let us know how we're doing, uh, leave us voicemails. If you want us to read your email on the air, you can do that as well. Let us know what you think about the actual Twilight Zone episodes as well. Um, What else am I missing? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. And uh, it would really help us out if you'd leave us a review on there as well. Absolutely. We'd really appreciate it. So uh, next episode is People Are Alike All Over. It's another Spaceman episode uh, (laughs) with a spaceship that looks awful familiar. Uh, so that's all I want to say about that. Um, I, I think, I think we're going to have an interesting discussion. We'll see. I, I don't know if you and I are going to agree with this one. So that's what I'll, that's what I'll tease. We, we might have being a, a, of a difference about that. Well, one. I, I see who you're saying about this, uh, main actor in this, right. uh, very excited now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, um, that's going to do it for us. Uh, have, have a safe week. Um, I mean, unless you, I mean, hopefully you're not being chased down by any, uh, past wives that are going to you know, shoot you. That would be bad. So (laughs) I got nothing. I don't know what else to say about that. Steer clear of those alchemists. We love a rose because we know it'll soon be gone. Whoever loved a stone? I'm not a rose. I'm not a stone. I'm a man. Very old and very frightened. Of what? Death? Yes, of death. You're a fool, Sam. I want to die. Then why don't you?